Oh, hello. Sorry, I wasn't expecting you all this early. I, you, you caught me reading this, uh, this very informative article in the latest Atlantic about the, the, uh, the health benefits of tantric bowling. Um, anyway, good evening, and welcome back to its 1985 Good Morning episode, sort of, four. I had a guest this week, but he bowed out. Don't you know it's Christmas? I'm like, oh yeah. It's kind of funny how it creeps up on you as you get older, right? Anyway, it, it kind of left me a lurch podcast-wise. I, I vowed to do an episode a week, so what would I do this week? I had no episode. And then I remembered the story. It's not a Christmas story as much as it's a winter story. See, my grandpa, my, my grandpa Fry, he told me this story, I think, during our first winter in Oregon, 1980. It's been in our family for a very long time, this story, and it's about my grandpa's dad when our family was still in Kansas. My grandpa's name was Lawrence Howard Fry. Everybody called him Bud. My great-grandpa's name was Benjamin Harrison Fry, which means uh, he was born a long, long time ago, 1889 to be exact. Anyway, this, this story takes place in Rice, Kansas. And Rice, Kansas, at, at this point, has a population of about 14,000 people. But my great-grandpa's world was his family, his brothers and sisters, and his three best friends. There was Charles, Peter, and Prescott. His name was Prescott. Anyway, they're all about nine years old, and they all live in the same area of maybe five or six houses spread out wide on this little dirt road that kind of yawns into nowhere and everywhere except in the wintertime when it's this lustrous blanket of virgin white. Well, unfortunately for my great-grandfather, his world also contained a couple of brothers, the Wolfs, Jack and Clarence. And my grandpa said that Jack and Clarence Wolf were every bit as savage as their family name implied. He couldn't call them twins exactly, more like they were nasty enough to have willed each other to the same age. They were a couple of years older than the other kids, which, when you're that young, is a gulf of strength and agility. They're going to be stronger than you. Faster. Meaner. Even four wily kids aren't going to be any match, because collectively, even four wily kids have limits. The Wolfs attended school even less than the average 19th century pre-adolescent, which was, they didn't attend school at all. And if they walked uphill in the rain and snow, it was only in pursuit of someone smaller to destroy. Add to that, these kids live in a largely unpopulated area with nothing to do except torment anyone naive enough to dare breathe their air. For my great-grandpa and his friends, every season was brutal with the wolves. Summers were spent face-first in rivers or dangled over cliffs. Springs and autumns were feasts of mud. But winters? Winters were the worst. Icebreaks on lakes could stop your heart. The snow could slow you down, swallow you whole, deeper than any creek. Against that white, it was impossible to hide. Every snowbank was potential artillery, just as every snowbank could be your grave. 
and winter was no different than any other season. The wolves always seemed to be in their element, gifted and mean, blessed with animus. Like Great Grandpa Benjamin, Prescott, Peter, and Charles were always their sitting ducks. While they were at school, the wolves were toiling all day long, rolling powdery carpets into long bombs, fortifying them with rocks coughed up from the creek. And when they saw their prey timidly making their way up the road home, they filled them skies with screamers. Boom. 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 Hellish drops. Wide explosions. Lobs with enough velocity to tear your arms off or belt your soles right out your ears. Coats were useless. They could turn on you, soak you to the bone, flatten you prone, become the burden of your life. You'd find yourself half crawling, half reaching for the safety of your door. Your eyes would swell shut, your face a matted canvas of mucus and blood. Snowballs fights in the 19th century, man, they were no joke. Prescott once almost died of pneumonia. Peter lost most of the hearing in his right ear. One winter, my great-grandpa was blind for two weeks. Jack and Clarence, though, they always walked away clean enough for church. That is, until the winter of 1898. Hello, I'm Darrell Wellbouts, owner of the Marco Polo Hotel. You have quarters, we have beds. Watch basic cable on the best Magnavox sets in town. Take a refreshing dip in our pool until 5 p.m. Drink complimentary coffee in our lobby with a nice policeman who always seem to be here. Please do not disturb our hourly rate clients. Enjoy a continental breakfast or wait for the Dairy Queen to open next door. You say Marco, we say Polo, but for 12 bucks a night, we can both call it home. The wolves were especially awful that winter of 1898. Maybe it was the pangs of puberty and their malevolence and flux. Maybe it was the encroachment of a modern age, one that would render such types as the wolves irrelevant. In any case, it was the most dire winter in memory. Temperatures plummeted into reaches. Well, you couldn't even call them reaches. They were more like deep bends. It was so cold the river snapped in half and became twin creeks. If you went outside and slid across the snow, your family wouldn't see you again until you got a boat back to Ellis Island. But these harsh conditions couldn't match the days-long assaults perpetrated by the wolves. My great-grandpa could be sleeping in his bed and wake up covered in melting dust. At breakfast, a projectile could smash his plate and freeze his milk. Everywhere they went, he and his friends got pummeled. They'd dream at night in strategy, reliving the day's horrors. Their coats were the very cold itself. Finally, they got tired of being afraid. 
They'd had it with Jack and Clarence. Finally, they were going to return the fight. While the wolves slept in their dens, calmed by visions of pestilence and tears, Benjamin, Charles, Peter, and Prescott began stockpiling ammunition, rolling their weapons into a cold spot under Prescott's house, 15, 20 snowballs a night until they almost doubled as the structure's foundation. And every day they took their licks, fortified by the thought of revenge when they'd lure the wolves like hungry dogs into their waiting trap. The day came at last, seven hours after the 202nd snowball was stuffed into hiding. The four boys emerged from their homes, each with a job to do. My great-grandpa Benjamin and Peter, they played the tantalizing decoys, zigzagging in plain sight, drawing fire, shouting taunts. You aim like a blind cat, Jack. You couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, Clarence Wolf. It was a different time. At just the right moment, they stopped and darted west, out of reach of the brothers' considerable distance, forcing them to advance toward Prescott's house, where Prescott and Charles awaited with war. The wolves did as predicted, coming down from their hillside perch, catapulting a ceaseless barrage of body-battering powder. Peter didn't make it back to base. He went down where the path diverged. Too many shots in the legs. He could barely move beyond watching my great-grandpa as he stopped briefly to consider their predicament. When their eyes met, they both knew what had to be done. Peter was a necessary casualty. A good soldier, he played the part, vanishing under a fusillade, becoming one with the snow. I think I'll let my great-grandpa take it from here. Buddy, how's the door boy in the world and our walls? How witness the atrocities no man should entertain even in his worst nightmares? But I was never as afraid as I was when Jack and Clarence Wolf belt down that hill like an avalanche with murderous intent. They produced snowballs from thin air as if handed down by the divine and stuffed with lightning. I don't know how I made it to the house. I've been hit so many times I felt like I was carrying my left leg and my right hand and my lower lip in my back pocket. I lost so much blood I could have filled another three people. I fought to catch my breath before the last one escaped for good. Through my right eye, watched my entire life play itself out. What I saw through my left eye son was worse. Prescott and Charlie, my two dearest friends, standing open-mouthed and empty-handed, faces wide as a new Kansas sky. 
What are you waiting for, I spat? They're coming. Then I happened to see in the Prescott's house, what once had been as Walla White was now but empty black. All of our reinforcements gone, stolen, hijacked by the enemy. I could hear the rumble behind us grown closer. Prescott and Charlie, they stepped back, put that much more distance between them and what was coming for us all. I don't know what came over me. It was a stroke born of panic. I swept my arms toward me, wrecking barrels and barrels of snow into my reach. I had enough there for at least three snowballs. Nothing pretty, but I had enough to go down swinging just to say we tried. So I backed one down, I smoothed it out. Then I summoned this enormous gobble spitting blood, and I smelled it across the surface, hold it together as best I could. Then I rolled onto my back, I closed my eyes, and I let fire. My friends told me later what happened, and it's the kind of thing only friends can tell you, and you believe it. But they said that sucker, after it left my hand, made a beeline toward a hailstorm of projectiles from hell above. And when it hit the first one, well, they thought that was luck. But Charlie swore he watched my little snowball quietly veer into its path, which was descending toward my head in sudden death. And the resulting explosion, well, that should have been the end. But they said my throw it continued as if it had collided with nothing at all. And whatever enemy fire remained in the sky was destroyed with precision and alacrity. <laughs> they didn't need to tell me what happened next. Cause I could hear it. A whirling, slashing hiss growing ever more closer then I felt it, a sharp sting to my throwing hand. And buddy, what I had released, it had returned like it never left. And old Jack and Clarence, they had visible now. In fact, they had stopped, dumbfounded, even more dumb than we found them. I looked at Charlie, Charlie looked at Prescott, we all looked at each other, coming to the same conclusion. They rushed to my side, and Charlie grabbed that snowball, hawking as hard as he could, two, three, four, five times. They shipped it in his hand, and I saw a thought fill his head, and a sly grin cross his mouth, and he threw that thing with everything he had. And Lord, we watched as it sealed through the frost and went straight for the enemy, like it would take both of them out in a single visit. But the wolves, they scattered in different directions, boy. They inadvertently left behind their secret weapon, a little red toy wagon, loaded with enough snowballs, 16 walls. Well, 
That all changed in an instant. Our little spitball helped itself to that cargo, direct hit, dead center. And old Batch Snow over there took the new flat, and that red toy wagon hugged itself like a trap snapping shut on a grizzly bear's throat. <laughs> did the snowball come back? <laughs> you best believe it did. And Charlie turned it over to Prescott. Prescott rolled it between his palms, savoring whatever revenge played out in his mind. I counted at least four scenarios as they came and went before he let loose with one last dribble, swirled it around the Titan Coast Foundation. And then he made a tiny incision in the center, threw some wink, nodded, self-powered that monster right into them history books. We gasped in amazement as our creation took off in a deceptively straight line toward the woods and the wolves. And then, without warning, it split in half, followed each of them separately to the east and west. They all disappeared over the horizon and way far beyond. I never saw that snowball again, because I never saw them wolves again either. Every now and then, for years and years and years, one of us pick up a newspaper, find some story every winter about two aging men together and apart, standing anywhere in this great big world. Could be Lawrence, Kansas. Could be Dallas, Texas. Could even be past France. But they'd be standing there, minding their own business, and then suddenly hit a dead sprint as if chased by the devil himself. Chased by the devil himself. You can't get more into the holiday spirit than that. I'm Corey Fry, and this has been It's 1985 Good Morning. Thank you once again for listening, and hey, Merry Christmas. Good evening, and welcome to a bored and impromptu edition of its 1985 Good Morning. I'm your host, the apartment-bound Corey Fry, thanks to our friends at Taco Bell and whatever gastro glop they're slapping on their cheese these days. But, believe you me, while snarfing on those flower-wrapped stormbringers, I was thinking deep. And for some reason, my mind turned to social media and the internet, as often it does, considering how prominent they've been in my life these last 20, 30 years. Um, <clears throat> in about 2008-2009, I wrote an essay called The Internet's a Mess, It's in Its Kiss which most of you hayseeds will recognize as a lift from The World's a Mess, It's in My Kiss by the band X, which itself is a crib from Betty Everett's The Shoop Shoop Song, also known as It's in His Kiss. A lot of kisses going around. But anyway, I wrote my piece during the height of the era of self-appointed web gurus and information wants to be free. And that was a crib, too, of course, from uh, writer Stuart Brand in 1984. But what he actually said in full was, On the one hand, information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. 
The right information in the right place and time just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it, getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other. So what was meant to illustrate an age-old conflict between stubborn forces was deceptively cut and pasted into a definitive battle cry. <sighs> this was also a time of the deliciously contrarian Paul Carr before his two sticks to his new imperial tech-crunch overlords and Nicholas Carr's provocative Atlantic essay is Google making us stupid. Um, there was also the once-hate-readable Jeff Jarvis, love you, Jeff, no offense, but his vituperous defenses of Web 2.0 at the expense of veteran journalists' livelihoods. Um, you had the marketing sector's shameless SEO groveling, and all the internal battles over self-serving futures. This is the future, everybody proclaimed and they all hoped to profit from whichever direction they could prod it in. Visit this site. Try this app. <clears throat> Funny thing about the future, though. The future does whatever the hell it wants. But it was all fun. And I sometimes miss that pseudo-gonzo Silicon Valley swagger. Down with gatekeepers. Catapult over paywalls. Wisdom of the crowd. Audience is the master. To create is to be subservient. Give them all blowjobs. Adopt my jargon. Buy my TED Talk. In some ways, that reflection is enlightening. In others, it's like revisiting an ancient tribe that believed gods pushed planets across the galaxy in wheelbarrows. <clears throat> 